Okay, thanks again, guys, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today, as Leah said earlier, if it's your first Sunday especially, but welcome to you all. Uh, it's great to see you uh, this, this Sunday. Uh, we're going to continue with our big question series today. So a lot of you know we've been in this series for the summer, but if you uh, have not uh, heard or if you're, if you're brand new, we've been preaching questions we've gotten from the church uh, as pastors, questions about theology or the Bible or uh, something maybe about our philosophy of ministry maybe. And we've preached topical sermons on this all summer, all summer. And so it's been a lot of fun. Thanks again to all of you who've contributed to the series by asking such great questions. We have two more weeks of this before going on to something a little bit different um, come the week after Labor Day into uh, most of the school year actually will be in a, a new um, Bible book series, which is kind of our main uh, MO preaching-wise here. So, um, but here's the big question we received, uh, or, the, or the topic anyway, has to do today with marriage. How will marriage work in eternity how will marriage, human marriage, work in the new earth um, or in heaven? So um, the, the big question then, the more expanded question we received is, uh, is here. I'll read this uh, in full here and we'll, we'll dive in. The question was, we have learned that heaven comes down to earth in the future, that everyone will live on a new earth after Christ comes. So what does it mean with marriage if in the new world... Uh, there are no marriages. Like, how does that work? How does it work with people who married more than once if their partner passed away and married a second time? So it's a great question. This is actually a question that um, Jesus explicitly addresses, which we haven't gotten that all the time this summer. So kind of nice when we do get one of those where it's more explicit versus implicit. But Jesus addresses this question in Matthew chapter 22, also in the Gospel of Mark. But if you um, have a Bible or a phone app and you want to turn there today, you can turn to Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33, which will be our main text. But he actually addresses it in connection with the issue that today's big question presupposes. And that is, again, that a new earth is the home for Christians. A new earth is our future home. It's not heaven, even though that's a temporal landing spot, for lack of a better phrase, uh, for uh, individuals, for, for um, Christian souls to be with Christ when we die. But uh, the, the future hope we have is that our souls and bodies will be reunited when Jesus returns uh, with the church uh, to establish his kingdom here in full. Uh, and so another way to say that would be our, our hope is heaven on earth, not heaven in the sky. Our future home is heaven on earth, not heaven in the sky. And so what I want to do is uh, preach, uh, just take the, the opportunity today to preach Matthew 22. Uh, we'll address the question, definitely, but we'll also cover a lot of other uh, topics that kind of orbit around it uh, as we go. So it'll uh, be a lot of fun. So Matthew 22, 23 to 33, let's read that in full to begin. It'll be on screen or follow along in a Bible or phone up you have to if you would like. All right, verse 23. The same day the Sadducees came to Jesus who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Okay, so just to summarize this a little bit, the Sadducees were a sect of Jews, of religious elites. They were, uh, they were the conservative branch of uh, the main two, the other one being the Pharisees. Uh, and they did not believe in the resurrection of the body. And so they, they try to trap Jesus here with a question, uh, basically asking him, if, the, if there is such a thing as a bodily resurrection, which we know there isn't, but if there is, then how does marriage work when so much remarriage happens in the first life? So Jesus answers basically by saying, you're wrong, and here's why. So I, I love how Jesus responds. Actually, well, Matthew responds with a but, so a strong kind of contrasting conjunction there uh, to kind of poke back at what the Sadducees are doing by trying to trap Jesus uh, with a, what they feel is an unanswerable question, um, one that will prove their point, but in fact it doesn't work. It kind of backfires, and Jesus exposes um, their, their lack of trust and belief in the power of God but also their failure to understand what the Bible is actually saying uh, about, about these things. Here's some initial observations to make, though, before we dive in that I think are kind of fun to work through uh, and, and interesting, things that are easily missable uh, when you read passages like this uh, in Jesus' ministry. The, the first is, and kind of going off here, especially how Jesus responds, right there in verse 29, especially with, uh, you are wrong because you know neither the Bible nor uh, nor the power of God. The, the first is, it's possible to be wrong, right? And God isn't afraid to tell us that. God is love, the Bible says. Jesus, God's son, the most loving being in the universe, said at one point in his ministry to people like us, you aren't right. You're wrong about things. So it's not unloving to tell people that they're wrong sometimes because you actually have here love personified, the essence of love. God is love saying to people that they're, they're incorrect. Or, or to put it differently, we then too, we can love people while we disagree with them, right? And that, that is something that's increasingly problematic or uh, difficult for people to actually believe in and apply today, especially outside the church, but also certainly for Christians like us as well. Uh, but we can love people while we disagree with them. And again, we know this because we're actually seeing it here in the Bible. Jesus did. Jesus was actively loving his enemies, these Sadducees, who were trying to entrap him uh, as he was saying, I disagree with you, you're wrong, and let me show you why. All right, so second, it's possible to be wrong about the Bible. Many have said before that if we never have any disagreements or issues with the Bible, in other words, God, because he wrote it, it's not God we believe in, but our version of God which is no God at all. Instead, we believe in ourselves. And so, so whether it be the, the doctrine of hell, the Bible's perspective on homosexuality, gender roles in marriage and in church leadership, the greater doctrine of sin, the exclusivity of Christ being the only way to God, not one of many ways, but the only way to God, or maybe just the doctrine of grace itself, which tells us over and over again there's absolutely nothing at all that we can do or have done to earn God's favor, but only receive it by faith or trust in his son's bloodied body. Like, whatever it be, if it be one of those ideas or doctrines or teachings or statements or something else, these things carry different levels of discomfort and offense to us, right? Christian or not. But that doesn't make them untrue. And so we need to allow the Bible, as Jesus does here, to inform 
and, and correct us. So we either modify the Bible or tear out pages or stop reading altogether uh, or we, we allow it to change us. And, and what we see here is it's a beautiful picture of Jesus wanting the Sadducees, even though they're trying to, trying to trap him with, with their words and their, their hypothetical. Jesus wants them to be changed by the Bible. Jesus wants people to be changed by the Scriptures. And we should as well. We should want this for ourselves. We should want this for other people. But the way to change, the way to, that we get to change is through the truth of, of the Scriptures. And that leads me to this third section, which is Jesus cites the Bible as authoritative for knowing what is true. It's his book. It's not a book that's above Jesus, but it's an extension of, of Jesus. We, we know him through it, not apart from it. Uh, he says here again to, to, the, to the Sadducees, you are wrong because you don't know the Bible. You see that connection between being right and knowing the Scriptures? You're wrong, not just because you're wrong, but you're wrong because you don't know the Bible. You don't know the Scriptures. That's why you've erred. That's why you've gone off into left field and why you teach bad theology, why you believe bad theology, things that just aren't true. They're false. They're wrong. It's because you haven't understood this book. You haven't understood it on God's terms. You haven't understood it in the way that it's meant to be read. You've diverged from it. And so, like, for, from our perspective, then, is Christians are not. Like, what this is saying is, what Jesus is saying is, there's no true version of Christianity that's Bible-less. There's no true version of Christianity, though we try to invent these things all the time, there's no true version of Christianity that is not Bible-centered because there's no way to have the truth. There's no way to hear God's voice and to know how he self-discloses to the world without the living, active, breathing words of, of Scripture. More on that later. But just some initial things to start with. And then what I want to do now is kind of work through the passage backwards by starting with the resurrection and then talking more about marriage and then answering the big question today when, when we get there. They do relate to each other and the one kind of leads to and, and presupposes, like I was saying before, the other. But I do want to, I do want to talk about it since uh, it's a huge part of the whole argument here and um, for a lot of you this might be uh, brand new as well. But the first is this. The resurrection of the body, according to Jesus, will happen. The resurrection of our bodies will occur in the future, just like his body was raised 2,000 years ago. So the Sadducees have uh, a belief in a vague notion of heaven, but not in the resurrection of the physical body. And many Christians today believe a version of this, uh, that, heaven, that the idea that heaven's our home and the, the, our bodies will turn to dust and remain that way forever while our spirits live on. But, but that is an extremely unchristian idea especially when you think about how all of Christianity, according to the Bible, revolves around and hangs on this idea, this historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead physically. His disciples on that first Easter morning when they ate with him and saw him, they were not seeing a ghost. When the women were there at the tomb and one of them thought he was the gardener, they were not seeing a ghost, but they were seeing his actual body raised from the dead. So, Christianity hangs on that. The Bible says without that, it crumbles. And so much of our hope then, as people who are going to die someday, maybe someday soon, the hope, the hope for us is that our bodies will follow. The ultimate hope is not that our spirits will live on forever, but that our, these actual bodies that we have right now 
will be remade and glorified and perfected like Jesus' was after he suffered so much and after it was torn to shreds on that cross, it was put together and remade uh, and then he left the tomb and walked out uh, forever. So relatedly then, our, our future home is, is going to be this earth as well. It's related because as the idea that God is remaking the physical, it, it applies to bodies but also to the physical creation. Uh, the Bible says that, that the heavenly city comes down out of heaven to earth in the end and Jesus will rule and live here with his church. Also notice in this passage that Jesus says, in the resurrection, these things will happen. Marriage won't exist anymore. Not in heaven. That's how we talk, right? In heaven, such and such will be the case. In heaven, I'll be able to do this. In heaven, I'll see so and so. Not how Jesus talks. He says, in the resurrection, such and such will be true. In and when bodies are raised on planet earth here, and Jesus is here, we can see him face to face, then such and such will, will be true. You see how, how it's different? That's the way we should, we should talk as well. Now, now to help uh, argue for the, the resurrection, uh, Jesus quotes from Exodus 3, 6 here. And the reason he's doing this is because the Sadducees only upheld as authoritative the first five books of the Old Testament. Exodus is one of them. And so there's other places he could have gone to argue for the legitimacy of the, uh, the, the, to argue for a bodily resurrection, but he doesn't. He goes here because the Sadducees have to affirm its truthfulness. They, they do. And so he quotes from Exodus 3 and says, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Haven't you read that? Jesus is saying. Haven't you read what God said to you when, when, he, when he said that? He is not the God of the dead, but, uh, but of the living. All right? This is a, an odd passage to cite here because one, one could think when you read this, well, but those guys are dead. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are dead. They're not living. And even when the, this passage was, was cited, when Jesus spoke these things to the Sadducees, or I'm sorry, when he spoke to these things to Moses in the beginning, around 1400 BC, they were dead even then as well. All the patriarchs, these three main patriarchs who lived during the time of Genesis, they were dead then as well. So even when Moses is hearing this, they, they, they were dead. So we kind of like say, well, Jesus, this is a weird thing to argue or to use to argue for living people because, because they're dead. But I think that's the key to understanding what's going on here. And that is, God uses the present tense. He says, I am the God of the patriarchs. Not, I was their God when they were alive, and now we just have a memory, but I presently am the God of the patriarchs. And so this points us to how they were presently alive, even though they were dead, and the related hope that their spirits and bodies would be reunited one day at the final resurrection. God is, in other words, as Jesus says, the God of the living. He's the God of the living ones, not the God of the dead who will just be remembered but not actually live on forever, but he is the God of, of the living. So for Christians then, we kind of take cue here and we say uh, memory, and this is by experience, I'm guessing you'd all, you'd all affirm this, like memories for us are not enough. When we experience the death of a loved one or a friend or a spouse, a parent, just having good memories doesn't make us, doesn't fix the problem. Uh, nor is 
the idea that our loved ones are in heaven. That doesn't fix it either. Like, if we're staring at their gravestone where we buried them and they're not talking to us in the flesh, they're not talking to us, they don't live and breathe and we can't love them physically, it's not enough. And so it is some, there's some sort of consolation to the idea that our loved ones, if they're Christians, are in heaven spiritually with Jesus, awaiting the, the reuniting of their spirits with their body. There is consolation to that. But as Christians, and I think Jesus picks up on this here, it's not enough. It's not enough to say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are just in heaven. It's not enough. He takes it a step further to say they are going to be resurrected someday. And God is the God of, of them in that living state now, spiritually but physically in, in the future as well. So for us as Christians, staring at gravestones, and I think for everybody, that's problematic because if our, if our bodies stay in the ground, death wins. It doesn't matter if our spirits live on in heaven forever. If our bodies stay in the ground, death wins and Jesus loses. Jesus didn't fix all of our problems. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that death did lose. Jesus does win and he walked out of that tomb to prove it. Not spiritually as a ghost, but physically as, uh, as a human being to show that he's a first fruits. All of us will follow one day, those of us who have faith and trust in him. Before we move on, though, I want to take a short bunny trail here for a second uh, and look at something Jesus says that it does relate, actually, but it's um, a little bit of a, a peripheral thing. But I love how Jesus says here, and asks this question, have you not read what God said to you? Is that really interesting? Jesus is saying to the Sadducees, it's just a great question to ask maybe anytime you're reading the Bible, especially when God is self-disclosing like this. But he's saying to the Sadducees, these people that lived in the early part of the first century, he's saying, didn't you read this part of the Bible? But not just that, didn't you read when God said this to you? To you. And we could say, wait a minute. God didn't say that to the Sadducees. He said that to Moses at the burning bush when he appeared and self-disclosed there. He didn't speak to the Sadducees. He spoke to Moses. But that's not the rules by which Jesus operates. He says what he said to Moses, he's also actively, presently in that moment as you read the Bible, speaking those words to you as well. Do you read the Bible this way? Is his question. Do you approach the scriptures and hear God's voice call out to you this way? Do you do it that way, the right way, or do you not do it and do it, again, to quote Jesus, the wrong way? Are we wrong? And do we not understand the power of God and the truthfulness of, of the scriptures? Do you guys see that? Tons of implications here for how we read. You know, do we read the Bible just as a history book, maybe as someone's thoughts about God, or do we read the Bible the way Jesus does? As though when God is self-disclosing, we hear him actually in the room right now as, we're, as we open the word that he's calling these things out to us right in this very room. Not as something he did just to Moses and then we're learning a principle about the way he did that and we apply a principle to our lives. That's not how Jesus reads the Bible. Nor should you, nor should I. But is actively calling out to you, to us, even though he didn't originally physically say it to you in history. He is when you open the Bible and when you read it that way. 
It's like what John Piper says about wanting to hear the voice of God audibly. If you want to do that, open the Bible and you yourself read it audibly and that's God's voice in that very moment. But this is the principle. Read the Bible like Jesus does and that is as though God is actively self-disclosing to you. He wants you to know what he's like. And as a way to practice that, like as a church this morning, the issue aside, even though we're going to keep talking about it, God's particular self-disclosure here in Exodus 3, in Matthew 22, is the same truth for us. Not just for Moses, not just for the Sadducees, but for us. And not just a truth, but God's actively spoken truth over us to tell us something about what he's like. And so God is saying to us, I am the God of the living, Hiawatha Church. Now, today, in this very room and in your very lives, this is my identity. Know me based off of this self-disclosure. The fact that he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were dead, to living people like Sadducees and us, means he wants us to run to him and have the same hope. God says, I am the God of the living to people who are all slowly dying. And so, if you want to live, you must run to him for life. What else or who else in the Bible is titled the something of the living? Does anybody else have that title? Does anything have that title? Any angel? Any law? Only God is called the God of the living. Only he is the source of life. And so again, if we want to live as dead people and as dying people, we must run to him who raises the dead. We must run to him who breaks the power of death, who forgives us our sins, which is what brings death to us eternally. And, and he does all of these things for the ones who trust in his son, Jesus Christ. All right? So that's all the first section today. The first piece of this is the resurrection of the body will happen. The second piece is, but there will be no marriage in the new earth. There will be no human marriage, physical marriage, in the new earth. Verse 30 again says, in a sentence, Jesus answers, for in the resurrection, they, they Christians, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Like the angels are currently in heaven, that is what we will be, will be like. All right, so in one sense, it is that simple. Our, our marriages in this life don't continue on forever into eternity. And so the question about the woman with seven husbands is moot. She will be no one's wife in the new earth. That's the answer. And the Sadducees think they're tricking Jesus here, of course. They just don't understand the power of God, uh, nor do they understand the purpose of marriage and what it exists for. And so they really just, it's a huge swing and a miss for them. But Jesus helps them here, still, in love. He's speaking the truth. And he's saying, the woman with seven husbands, that's a moot. The whole thing's moot. She'll be no one's wife in the new earth, period. All right, so in one sense, the, the answer to today's big question, to the Sadducees' question, uh, it's a great question, um, but it's that simple. The other side of the coin, however, is there's a lot more to say about marriage, not all of which we'll be able to, to cover today, but some of which we will. And so while all of this is true, there is something else to say, and that is 
there will be one marriage that does exist and continue on into the new earth. And it will pertain to us all, but I mean marriage is this singular idea, to all Christians, all who are saved from their sins and from death, who cling to Jesus for eternal life. And that is a marriage between Jesus and the church. That will continue on. And so in that sense, marriage does continue. It just is replaced by the thing that made marriage exist at all in the first place. Some of the last words of the Bible are, let us rejoice and exalt and give, give God the glory for the marriage of Christ or the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Uh, the Bible ends with the marriage. It begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve. It ends with the marriage with Christ's love for the church. And this is a spiritual marriage, of course, not a physical one. But the idea is that the goal of salvation is closeness to Christ, just intimacy with our Creator, our Savior. He, he is what will make eternity great. Like if you're looking forward to, to the future, as you should be, He is what will make eternity great. Um, seeing people we love and, and knew in this life, yes, that will make the new earth amazingly great. But much more than that is that He will make eternity great because you will be made one with Him as you are now spiritually that will be all the more manifest and physical in the new earth where we will have a spiritual like intimacy and closeness with, uh, with Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. That's the idea. That's the goal of salvation. Sin is so much taken away that that is possible. So being able to see him face to face and draw life from him, to, to glorify him and enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Catechism says, that's the chief end of mankind Human marriage, then, points to that reality, but gives way to it in the end. That's a huge thing to understand theologically and biblically, that things are placed into creation as physical depictions of heavenly realities, and in this case, a reality that comes down to earth uh, to reveal himself and complete what these former things kind of began. It's the same with the sun, a little bit different topic, but same idea. In Revelation 21, 23, it says about the, the new earth, the city of salvation, and about the sun, it, it says, the city, the new earth, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is Jesus. Its lamp is the lamb. So in other words, the sun as we know it will not continue on. There are things that we that won't be there anymore because the sun exists for the sake of pointing us to Jesus, but when he comes in full, those shadows will take a, take a step backwards and just dissolve and disappear. Uh, nights will be no more. Sin and death obviously will be no more. Oceans will be no more, um, the, the Bible says in Revelation as well, um, because of these different things they represented and how Jesus was, was overwhelming them and undoing them or in some cases fulfilling them like in the case of the son and marriage. So we kind of use the same language here for marriage. These are just my words, but you could say, the eternal city has no need for marriage, for the glory of God is its ever-satisfying story, and its love is the Lamb. Okay, but here's the thing. All of this doesn't cheapen marriage now. It actually heightens the importance of it and gives it fuller meaning and a theological weightiness that it other, otherwise wouldn't have. A husband's love for his wife, as I put up here, 
A husband's love for his wife is a shadow of Christ's love for the church. Is there a more meaningful thing to reflect? Marriage then isn't beautiful because it lasts, but because it relates to Jesus, the most beautiful being in the universe. And there's so many implications here that I, I don't have time to unpack in full, but here are a few that you can kind of hang your hat on today and think a little bit about big picture things. They do relate to the question as well, um, but in a big picture sense. And, and the first is, again, if this is all true, and it is, that human marriage is a shadow of God's love or Christ's love for the church, Christ being the ultimate husband, the church being the ultimate bride, as Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19 teach, as well as Old Testament passages that look ahead to it, it is a thoroughly biblical notion. But if that is all true, then this is the true reason then why anything other then monogamous, lifelong, vow-keeping, sacrificial love between a man and a woman is not biblical marriage. In fact, it's not marriage at all because marriage is God's invention, as is gender, as is sex. They exist to tell his story, to serve as a shadow of Christ's husband-like love for the church who is like a bride to him. So this then is why divorce pains God, because divorce tells the wrong story. This is why unfaithfulness and passive husbands pains God, because it reflects the opposite of what he is like as a true husband. This is why homosexual behavior in marriage is forbidden in the Bible, because it tells the wrong story, a story of a non-gender diverse union. When in fact, our union with God is diverse. We are not like him, and he is not like us. Heterosexual marriage tells that story, whereas homosexual marriage and sexual union just simply cannot. The, the list goes on. But this is also then why we see in Hebrews 13:4 to the church, this command, marriage should be honored by all. Honor marriage, he says. Singles can do this, marrieds can do this, widows can do this, widowers can do this, children can do this, engaged couples can do this. We can all honor marriage by praying for it and considering it important because of how much it relates to the gospel. So we can honor marriage not because it's better than singleness, it's not, but because marriage is a holy, gospel-reflecting Future hearkening ordinance, that's why. And to have healthy marriages in the church is to have living, breathing dramatizations of redemption walking around right alongside the preaching ministry of the church. So as you hear the gospel proclaim something that's marriage-related, like God loves you like a husband loves a bride, and what has bearing on our life now is God's love for you, not your ability to be good, just like Taylor didn't marry Megan because she was perfect, but because he loved her, right? Calling you guys out for a second. But um, marriages, good marriages never happen on condition. They never happen based off of, I'm marrying you because you'll, you'll do something for me or because you've been, you've been good. That's not romantic. That's not marriage or love. Love is I love you in, in spite of your imperfections. I know everything about you and I still love you. I choose you. Over all the women of the world, or all the men of the world, I choose you. That's romance. 
That's love. That's, that's marriage. All right? So I can preach that and say that. The Bible can speak to that. But then when you see a marriage physically happening, like in your space, whether it's your parents or whether it's a friend's marriage or your marriage, a stranger's marriage in the confines of Hiawatha Church, and you see it happening healthily, you're physically, empirically seeing the reality that was just preached earlier in the day. Does that make sense? It's like communion. You can preach that Jesus' body is the bread and blood is the wine, and then you can say, it's sufficient to know that, but at the same time, kind of not really, because you need to take communion to taste it. God wants you to empirically sense it. Marriage is sacramental in that regard. It shows you what's true invisibly with God and his church. It physically shows this. This is why it's so important, why the church must take marriage deeply seriously. We can't mess with it or change the definition of it or just, you know what, it's not that big a deal. Just not talk about it that much. We need to pray for our marriages. Husbands need to cowboy up and love their wives and be men and die for them. And wives need to reciprocate that love to their husbands, respect their husbands, cherish them, celebrate them, brag about them like the church does to Christ. I mean, all these things are, they tell the right story and, and to, not, to not do it tells, tells the wrong story. And, and so all along then, guys, we, if we're struggling to know what the future has for us or what the gospel is like, we can listen to sermons, we can read the Bible, we can get encouragement with words from our friends, that's so good and, and crucial. We need that. We can also say the future is kind of like the best and happiest days of marriage. That's what it's like. Like, are you struggling to know what the future earth will be like? Well, look at a healthy marriage. That's kind of what it's going to be like. When a husband dies for his wife and puts her first, when a husband and wife laugh together, when they explore a new hobby together, when they ask each other deep questions and listen to one another, when they buy things for each other, when they hold hands, that's what the future is going to be like. Yes, and, and 10,000 times better than that, and in many other ways and for many other reasons, it will be great. But it's a sliver. It, it's, a, it's an instance where the future is breaking into the past or the present, where we are now. It's a glimpse. It's a whisper of what's, of what's coming and God gives us marriage to empirically demonstrate what the gospel is and, and because he knows that we need it. We're spiritual and physical people. We have ears and eyes. We need to hear and see, take it in with our heart and our brains, right? It's, it's, we're, we're not simple creatures. We're complex. And so he knows, we, and he is, and he knows we need both to see and taste and empirically sense and watch, and also uh, hear, and consider the invisible, and hear the gospel proclaimed, which is the sun casting its light down under earth, saying, I'm giving meaning to everything. I'm giving meaning to marriage. I'm giving meaning to suffering. I'm giving meaning to bread and wine. I'm giving meaning to the sun and the moon. I'm giving meaning to everything. It all exists for me. And we can acknowledge that or not, right? Um, it's one of the things I tell the, the premarrieds that I counsel uh, all the time. I, I know Spence does too and, and Emily, is marriage is not about you. It, will, it is the thing, lots of things that can. I think it's the thing that will give you happiness in your marriage is to know your spouse is not your God. 
And your marriage exists for the, for the sake of telling a story that's beyond your story. It's not as though you don't matter and happiness won't come. It, it, it will. Marriage is a wonderful thing, but it also will greatly disappoint you if you put it first uh, in, in life. And so, but to, to think that and to know that your marriage exists for the, take of, for the sake of telling God's story is to find a lot of happiness uh, and to know it will fade someday. So that when marriage is hard, that won't continue on forever. When marriage is hard, that will come to an end. But what will continue is the good days of your marriage just reshaped into the person and work of Jesus Christ who will fulfill those good days of marriages that you've had with your spouse in the first life. All right, so um, just to wrap up here a little bit, I have a few more things to say. There's a lot of, go- a lot of things going on today. It's a little bit of a hodgepodge sermon, but uh, since we're in Matthew 22, I just wanted to kind of poke at a few things here and, and hopefully um, maybe address a few more big questions along the way if you've had uh, some related questions before yourself. But one more thing uh, that we learn here, I think, is that um, there is a hierarchy of importance here when it comes to how Jesus responds to the Sadducees. So back to Matthew 22, when Jesus is talking here, when he's, he's not just silencing critics or answering a question or astonishing the crowds, though he is doing all those things, he's doing more. In Matthew 22, he is helping us to see that there is a more important truth here than the question about marriage, as good as that is. Did you notice when I was reading before that the Sadducees didn't even ask about the resurrection of the dead, but Jesus offered a defense of it anyway? Did you guys notice that? They asked about marriage, and Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures, um, but, and he, and he offers, offers something there, uh, or the power of God, and he offers something there. But then he goes on to say, oh, but also about the resurrection, which you didn't ask about, because he knows their theology is whacked when it comes to the resurrection. So he's like, I've got you here. And he just kind of just goes right into it and addresses their faulty understanding of the, of the in, their, in their eyes, the non-existence or non-truthfulness of the resurrection of the body. But basically what he does is he, the, the Sadducees don't even ask about it. Jesus offers a defense of it anyway. And he gave an answer to a question they didn't ask because he knew it was even more important than the one that they did ask. And I love the Bible does this sometimes because it, it, it presupposes we don't even know what questions to ask sometimes. Isn't that like humbling but also pretty great to know that you, if it, when it comes to salvation, it's not even about us knowing what questions to ask all the time. Or like, it's not on us at all. But on Jesus saying, I know what you need. I know the questions you need answering and I'm the answer. I know the problems you need solved. You don't even know what your biggest problems are, but I do and I love you. All in the spirit of what's going on here. Isn't that awesome? He knows us so well, you guys. Way better than we know ourselves. And he knows what we need. And here, what we need is not a simple answer about will there be marriage in the new earth. As great of a question as that is, he answers it, brackets it to the side, leaves it there, and then says, now about the more important weighty matter about the resurrection which you deny, but you need to believe in to be saved. Let's talk about that. Because again, we could ask, does it ultimately matter whether or not there is marriage in heaven? 
that, that we know, sorry, whether or not there's marriage in heaven, does, does that matter? It doesn't. It doesn't ultimately matter whether or not you nail that question about if there's marriage in the new earth. You can get it wrong and still be saved from your sins and still have union with God, right? And hope for eternal life because it's not the main thing. It's not the ultimate question. But now flip that around and say, does it ultimately matter that we know that God is the God of the living? Do we have to know this? The answer is absolutely. We have to know that. We have to receive God's self-disclosure here because if we don't know he's the God of the living and has power over death, how are we going to trust in him for deliverance from death and sin? And trust is what makes a person a Christian. Clinging to what he does, not to what we do, is what makes a person a Christian. So that's the story arc of Scripture. God saying, this is who I am. Trust in me as though I'm sufficient. Believe as though I'm sufficient and you'll be saved. And my all-sufficiency is me sending my son to die among criminals for you. That's how much I love you. To die in your place so justice is done. My wrath's poured out and there's a way around. I, I can pass over you now with punishment because I've laid it, out, laid it on him and not on you. That's all sufficiency when it comes to salvation. And that's then where I want us to land today as well. God says, again, to, to quote Jesus, to us. This is what he says, to us. Like Jesus said, Exodus 3, 3, 6 was saying something to the Sadducees who lived 1,400 years later. God is saying something to us, and that is, he is the God of the living. When Jesus died on a bloody tree, and three days later he kicked down the stone door of his tomb, all in love for us, it's not a small thing. Nothing's impossible for him, including saving you and me from death. So the death you feel in life, the death you experience, the death you're marching towards. Jesus is master of them all. In, in a lot of ways, we are like the woman in the Sadducees' odd hypothetical, where we are tossed around to and fro. We have all these marriages. None of them satisfy. Our husbands keep dying. We're continually left with nothing. And we go through this cycle over and over and over again. And yet Jesus says, oh, here's the truth to you. Those of you, those of you who are rejected, my marriage to you will last forever. Those marriages will fade and I will replace them with myself. I own, look what he says in Revelation 1.18. I am the living one. I was dead. Now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of, of death and Hades. I determine who dies and who lives. That there is no God of death out there somewhere who is the equal and opposite to Jesus, as if it's yin-yang or if it's Star Wars theology. It doesn't exist. He alone is the God of the living and, in a sense, the God of death because he went there and destroyed it and snatched the keys from the God of death's hands and now he's the one who owns it all, who's master of it all, which is a greatly encouraging thought if he's good and loving, which he is. And so what he's saying is, trust in me. Look at what I did. I died for you and I rose again. And I hold the keys of death. So for you all who are in the process of dying and me, believe in me. Run to me. The God of the living who is alive, not just temporarily, but forever 
and ever and ever and ever, and, and so will you be. So will I crash you out of your tombs one day when I come back and exert that type of power of God over you, the ones I love. So run to Jesus, the God of the living, who was swallowed by death for us, and you will live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this question, this passage today, uh, which again is very nuanced and um, and interesting and fun, but there's a lot going on here, but we especially thank you for uh, being the God of marriage, the God of the sunrise. You are the God of all things on earth that gives shape to what you're like because you spoke them into existence in the first place, that they might be just a whisper of what the true artist is like. We can learn by looking at creation. We can learn all the more by looking at the Bible, especially when the Bible shapes these types of things we're talking about. So, um, God, thank you that you are like a husband to us, more than a boss, more than a master, more than a teacher. The Bible ends with the marriage, not with commandments. It ends with a banqueting feast, a reception, 